Indeed, Christ is our cornerstone, and I just want to make it crystal clear this morning that here at Beulah Missionary Church, we are a church that is founded on Jesus Christ, the centrality of the cross of Jesus. We are a blood-bought people. We have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. We base our lives on the authority of the inerrant, inspired Word of God. There's a lot of churches that don't necessarily say those things, but at this church, that's exactly what we say. That's exactly where we are. And in a, in a world, in, in, a, in a culture where church is a place where people go to feel good or to watch videos or to see a light show or smoke and mirrors or to try to turn over a new leaf or 10 steps over depression, that is not what this church is about. This church is, is centered on Jesus and the gospel the cross of Christ, the authority of Scripture. And I tell you what, that is one hill I will die on. That is one hill I will die on. This is the last opportunity that we're going to have to gather around the book of Jonah. We've been seven weeks. This is week number seven. We've been circling the airport, and this morning we're going to try and bring it in for a landing. Hopefully we won't run out of runway this morning. If you've got your book, your Bible, your cell phone, your iPad, turn with me to the book of Jonah. Also pull out your note outline this morning. I'll tell you what, we not only, two words I want to say to you this morning, not only has this been a privilege, but we have opportunity. We are privileged to gather around the Word of God, but it is also an opportunity for us to learn and to decide we're going to raise the bar and make new commitments and a step up to a new level of decision for Christ. So we have privilege and opportunity. And I tell you what, it's been my privilege to study and to dig. You know what? If I never preached, if I never preached again, and that's my gift, if I never preached again, just the opportunity to study the Word of God is worth it all. I just love to study, I love to dig, and hopefully that which the Holy Spirit has revealed to me, I can pass some of that on to you, and let's see what's going to happen this morning. This morning, I'd like to do a little bit of an overview. I'd like to look at the structure of the book as we kind of close this thing out, and I'd like for you to find some white, play, some white space on your note outline this morning. Uh, you just have to figure out how to write this in, but I'd like you to write down a few numbers. Okay, write down a few numbers. The book of Jonah consists of 48 verses. Only four chapters, there's 48 verses. Now, what's interesting, again, we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God, how, how the, the biblical narrator, how the Holy Spirit has put this book together structurally, we can learn from that. If I would say to you, have you considered the book of Jonah, the very first thing you think about is the fish. Out of 48 verses, the fish is mentioned in three. That's it. A lot of people would say, well, the book of Jonah, it is about this this prodigal prophet, this, this, uh, uh, this disappointing servant of God who rebelled, who ran, and who had a lousy attitude. The book is about Jonah. Interestingly enough, Jonah only appears, the name Jonah, in 17 verses. Less than half. 
Do you have any idea how often the word God, I'm not talking about gods or pagan God, the word God in terms of Jehovah, the word Lord or God, how many verses that would appear? And the answer is 36. Out of 48 verses, in fact, I'm not quite sure if there's any other book in the entire Bible that you have, what would that be, two-thirds, three-fourths of the verses contain the name of God in the entire book. Now, why would I say that to you, aside from that it's an interesting anecdote? Because your tendency is going to be, be focusing on the fish in your life, the problems, the challenges, the hassles, the the depression, the discouragement that Pastor Earl mentioned and, and cited earlier, that is a small part of life. Three out of 48 verses. Your tendency will be to concentrate on the who in terms of, uh, of your prodigal daughter. You're going to be your prodigal son, your husband who's not walking with the Lord, yourself, your own needs. That's less than half of the book is Jonah. And my challenge for you this morning is that I wonder, two-thirds to three-fourths, That what is it, 36 out of 48? What's the ratio? Three-fourths? Do I spend three-fourths of my time considering God's activity and sovereignty over my life? What's the ratio of your focus of what's taking place in your life right now. The, the, the fish seems larger than life. The sailors, the captain, the wind, the waves, Jonah, the people involved. That, that just seems overwhelming. It seems that captures our attention. Judy and I were talking about this yesterday as she was sharing her devotions with me. But how often do I spend thinking of the one who is over the wind and the waves? How much time does he command my attention, my faith, and my trust? I think that is part of the message of the book of Jonah. Remember, God calls Jonah, and Jonah goes, no way, and he began running the opposite direction. Remember? Goes down to Joppa, which is just outside of Tel Aviv. The port is still there to this day. Found a ship bound in the opposite direction for Tarshish, had enough money in his pocket, and the ship was so unlikely to be there heading that way, and the devil will always have money in your pocket and a boat for you to climb on. And he begins taking off, and remember, he begins to sleep it away. To, to deaden the pain when you're in disobedience, he tends to sleep it away. I do not want to deal with reality, and so I'll sleep. I'll ignore it. I'll push it away until finally the Lord provides this storm and this wind and these waves. Remember we talked about the sailors. By the way, if you look in chapter 1, the sailors are mentioned different times. Interestingly enough, the Hebrew word for sailor is a root word for salt. It's where we get this whole idea of, of sailors being you know, salty sailors. And an old salt, we say, it comes from the Hebrew word for sailor. And what happens, this kind of, you know, fishzilla ends up swallowing Jonah, remember? And so now he's on the inside looking at a ribcage, and we don't exactly know how, how all that happened, but we know that it did. 
And then while God got his attention through this circumstance, Jonah was able to finally say, you know what? What I am doing is not right. When he finally came to his senses, as it speaks about the prodigal son, he's doing this, this internal wrestling. And by the way, your loved ones are doing an internal wrestling that you can't see any more than people could see Jonah inside the belly of that fish. And so suddenly, God then commands the fish to vomit uh, Jonah out on the beach. Interesting word, vomit. I actually did a word search or word study on vomit. Pastor Joel, you've got way too much time on your hands. The word vomit is used a number of times in the Bible. In the book of Leviticus, the Lord says to his people, you know what, you're going to be a disobedient people, you're going to be vomited out of the land, I'm going to vomit you from my presence. Talks about the book of Proverbs, a dog returns to its vomit. Talks about, remember the letters to the, to the seven churches in Revelation, Revelation 3, you are neither hot nor cold, you are lukewarm, he says to the church of, what is it, Laodicea? Therefore I will spew, Greek word vomit. Isn't it interesting? Every time the, the word vomit is used in the Bible, it is always a negative connotation with one exception, the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. Because God can take that which is of negative connotation and use it for our salvation. And so what happens is that Jonah suddenly begins changing his tune. Now let me show you, this is how we would expect the book of Jonah to unfold. This is how we thought it would happen. God called, would call Jonah, Jonah rebels and runs away. So far, so good, check. Act 2, God uses a storm and a fish to cause Jonah to obey the Lord. Check. Act 3, Jonah preaches and the Ninevites repent and turn to God. Check. What is Act 4? What would we expect? We expect Jonah to rejoice. As a matter of fact, if I were writing the story, if I was writing the book, if I could show you the DeSelm revised version of what happens next, this is what it would be. And Jonah and all the people knelt to pray and then stood to worship and they wept for joy and encouraged one another. The king decreed henceforth this day should be celebrated as the great day of the Lord for all time. And in all the land, none rejoiced more than Jonah the prophet. That's not exactly the way it turns out. As a matter of fact, listen to how it does turn out. You've got the, I've got the, the uh, text of Jonah 4 printed there for us. But Jonah was greatly, what? Displeased. What? That people came to the Lord? Jonah. And he became what? This guy's got issues. And he prayed to the Lord. Isn't it interesting? In the midst of issues, he's still doing some right things. By the way, when you're angry, 
when you're disgusted and displeased and mad for the wrong reasons, do you still pray? Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And now, oh, Lord, here we go again. This guy's got a death wish. Throw me overboard, chapter 1. Chapter 4. Kill me. Take my life. Watch it. Look at his value system. For it is better for me to die than to live. Wow. But the Lord replied. Isn't it interesting? Look at how long Jonah's conversation is compared to God's. Have you any right to be angry? Yes. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. He's pouting. There he made himself a shelter, this little lean-to. He sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah, or a gore maybe, or a plant, I don't know what your version says, to give shade for his head and to ease his what? Interesting. If I were God, I'm not sure if I'd be interested in his comfort. And Jonah was what? Happy about the vine. Now he's mad and displeased about the Ninevites being shown grace and coming to Christ, but I tell you what, creature comforts, I'm good with this. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. Oh, no. When the sun rose, now God provides a scorching east wind, a Scirocco, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head that he grew faint. Here we go again. And he wanted what? Man, what's with it with this guy? And said... It would be better for me to die than to live. You know, go back and look at verse 3. Yeah, Jonah, we've heard that before. Similar reply in verse 9. God said to Jonah, oh, notice, but God, verse 4 said, but the Lord. Isn't it interesting, in spite of his incalcitrance, stubbornness, attitude, but God, but grace, but mercy, but provisions. But the Lord said, you know, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow, sprang up overnight, died overnight, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And many cattle as well. Should, should I not be concerned about that great city? End of the book. The story doesn't finish. It just ends. 
What's Jonah do? What's Jonah's response? We don't know. And I think there's reasons we don't know. Incidentally, who has the last word in the story? God's got the last word in the story. The story does not end in the way we expect, does it? As I said earlier, in fact, it doesn't end, it just stops. Perhaps more than any other story in all of classic literature, it doesn't follow the predictable progression. I'd like to show you three plot twists. We're getting ready to write some stuff down officially. This is plot twist number one. As the story unfolds, we're surprised at the prophet's response. He pouts. Jonah gets angry. Now, what's strange about this is that the man is impeccable in terms of his theology. You can build a case. I'm going to look this up. You can build a case on the theology of God based on the book of Jonah. Jot in your margin at this point, Jonah chapter 1 Verse 9, this is what Jonah says, I am a Hebrew, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Notice, the theology of God, I worship God, he is the Lord, he is the God of heaven, he made the sea and the dry land. Notice what Jonah says in terms of theologically. Look in chapter 4. It's printed there. Look in verse 2. O Lord, once again, God is the Lord. I knew that you are, what's the adjective? Gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. What I want you to do is jot in your margin at this point Exodus 34, 6. Jot it in. Exodus 34, 6. Why? Because Jonah in verse 2 is quoting Exodus 34, 6. Listen to that verse. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Jonah knows his Bible. Jonah knows his theology. There is no fault in his orthodoxy. The fault is in his orthopraxy. I think the message is clear for us. Many of us in this room have impeccable theology. We know our Bible. We know about God. Now, when it comes to affecting my lifestyle and my attitude, that's a different story. But interestingly enough, even though Jonah knew biblical truths in his head, it didn't affect his attitude nor his obedience level. It's one thing to know the Word of God, as many of us do. It's something else to obey the Word of God. But nevertheless, that's not my main point here. In spite of that, 
God used this man. Not only used it in the life of the ship captain, in the lives of the sailors, in the lives of thousands of Ninevites, in spite of the fact that he's a flawed vessel. And that, my friends, should give you and me great hope. Look at the application here. God uses us in spite of our faults, in spite of our flaws, in spite of our foibles, in spite of our failures, to touch the lives of others in ways we don't understand and may never see. Now, do you remember, if you've got your Bibles in Jonah chapter 1, let me pull it back up again. Listen to this. I don't know if you've ever pieced this together. Verse 12, I'm in Jonah 1.12. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault, and this great storm has come upon you. Now watch this. Instead, these men showing more compassion as pagans than Jonah did towards the Ninevites, instead, they did their best to row back to land. They're trying to save this, this guy, even though he's a knucklehead. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. That The storm is intensifying. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Most biblical scholars and commentators believe that these men actually came to the Lord, came to Christ. Watch. Then they threw Jonah, they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea became calm. Where is Jonah right now? He's in the ocean. But look at the next verse. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. When did that occur? After they threw him overboard. Here's my question that you've never considered. How did Jonah know that happened? He's in the water. I don't think he's out there dog paddling going, have you given your lives to God yet? What's going up on deck? Before I sink, I just want to make sure that my effective ministry in your life is paying off. I don't think that's what he's doing. He's plummeting. Here's my question. How does he know what happened aboard the deck after they threw him overboard? He wrote the book. God must have revealed it to him. He, there's no way he could have known it. And what my point is, do you understand? Jonah touched the lives of these sailors and at the time had no concept of the impact he had. And it proves my point. Even though he's flawed, a failure, very disappointing, a prodigal prophet, God used him in spite of that. And let me give you a word of encouragement if you're a parent. There's no perfect parents. And you're looking at the life of your daughter and the life of your son. You're looking at your husband, a family member, and you said, you know what? If only I coulda, shoulda, woulda, had I not 
And I'm here to tell you, God, you did the best you could. You're a flawed vessel. And in spite of your efforts, as weak as they may have been, God still used you. You are not responsible for that person. They are responsible for, before the Lord. And don't think that your feeble efforts have been in vain. Because you've got the example of Jonah who couldn't have been a worse prophet. And you've got people from the beginning to the end of the book coming to the Lord. God uses imperfect people join the club. Number two, this is the second plot twist. We are surprised at the Lord's reaction because God demonstrates love and patience and grace. And if I were, I mean, if I was God, I would have gotten ticked off. I think I mentioned this to you a week or two ago. I would have said, you know, Jonah, you're not worth, you know, man, you know what, you have a great time in Tarshish. I'm going to find somebody else. As a matter of fact, in my back pocket, I've got another man named Frank, and I'm going to send Frank to the Ninevites because you, you're selfish, you're self-centered, you whine. Frankly, Joni, you annoy me. Have a nice life. I'm done. Be thankful I'm not God. That is not God's response. As a matter of fact, watch the way the structure happens. Jonah chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord God provided, circle the, the verb, provided a vine. Verse 7, God provided, circle it, a worm. Verse 8, God provided, circle it, a scorching east wind. That's in addition to what's not even printed on your bulletin. Jonah 1.17 says, the Lord God provided a great fish. Isn't it interesting? In three consecutive verses, four times altogether in this book, you see God's provision for this man. And this is a man who is disobedient. This is a man who is not walking with the Lord. This is a man who's being self-centered. And isn't it interesting? God provided. God provided. God provided. God provided. You know what? You think, you know what? All the stupid things I've done, God, God doesn't owe me anything. And you know what? You're exactly right. But he still provides. You want to know why? Because he's a God of grace. That's why. Yeah, but Pastor Joel, you don't, you don't realize what I've done. You know what? You're exactly right. You don't know all the stupid things I've done either. But I tell you what, you're a candidate for grace and God will provide again and again and again and again in your life. And you know what? You don't deserve it. That's why it's called grace. This is our application, beloved. God has a heart of compassion. This is one of the lessons from this wonderful book. He has a heart of mercy. He has a heart of grace for all people. And we see it demonstrated towards Jonah, towards pagan sailors, towards violent Ninevites. And you want to know? Towards a knucklehead like you and me. That is the message of the book of Jonah. 
that God is a God of grace. And then this becomes the third plot twist, if you're still taking notes. We are surprised at the story's conclusion. It's kind of like, what? This isn't, it's not supposed to end like that. What? what? The Holy Spirit purposely leaves the story open-ended. We expect some sort of resolution. I remember reading it for the very first time, and every time I read the book, I get to chapter 4, and I think, it's leaving us up in the air. There's no resolution. They don't tie it up with a neat bow and say, amen, and the hallelujah chorus is going on in the background. It just kind of, it doesn't end, it just stops. I remember in my Bible, the book of Jonah went all the way to the bottom of the page, and I get to that last verse in chapter 4, and I turn the page thinking, well, there's got to be a chapter 5. It's not there. Why doesn't God end the story? That's purposeful. Because the divine narrator is wanting you to insert yourself into the story. We don't know how Jonah responds. We don't know how Jonah reacts. God does have the last word. Now what, Jonah? And the now what points to you and to me. I'd like to do a quick comparison of the first half of the story with the second half of the story. You can see it printed there, but let me give you a couple phrases to jot in your margin. You ready? The first half of the book can be characterized by three words. Go, no, woe. Jonah, go, no, woe. The second half of the book can be characterized by these three words. Go, yes, bless. Notice the parallels in the story I've printed on your note outline. The first half of the book, Jonah is called to preach and runs. Watch the parallel. In the second half of the book, Jonah is called to preach again. It repeats itself, doesn't it? And he obeys. Look at the next set. In the first half, God sends a great wind, creates a storm on the ocean or on the Mediterranean Sea. In the second half, God sends a scorching wind. Do you see what the divine narrator is doing? He's establishing pattern. Watch. In the first half, Jonah is protected by a fish miracle. In the second half, Jonah is protected by a plant miracle. In the first half, Jonah huddles up inside of the fish Valley. In the second half, Jonah is now huddled up inside of a shelter, a lean-to. In the first half, God shows mercy to Jonah. In the second half, he shows mercy to the Ninevites. And I believe that there's a number of reasons we see this parallel in the first and the second, in the first and the second, in the first and the second. What's, what's the Holy Spirit doing? Watch carefully the structure. He is saying, I'm establishing a pattern. Don't miss it. 
And here's the reason. In the first half, Jonah is called to go and preach a message to a large group of people. In the second half, could it be, listen, that God is calling Jonah to speak and preach to a large group of people? Who would those people be? We can have the next screen. First half, he's called to preach to the Ninevites, a large group of people, the gospel. In the second half, who are these people that Jonah is now is to speak to to complete the parallelism? And what would that message be? You know who the second group of people is? Us. Us. And you know what the message is? God is a God of the second chance. And you need reminded of that this morning. That's why the book is left the way it is. Fill in the blank with your own name. British writer Eliza Haywood writes, the problem with humanity is this. Humanity stands at the crossroads and all of the signposts have fallen down. Let me repeat that. The problem with humanity is this. Humanity stands at the crossroads and all of the signposts have fallen down. Beloved, she's wrong. That's not true because the book of Jonah is a signpost. And somebody would come a thousand years later and say, there will be no sign given to you except the sign of Jonah. Gives me goosebumps just to say it. It is a signpost. What's the sign of Jonah? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Demonstrating a God of compassion, a God of mercy, and a God of grace who can give sinners a second chance. And that's you. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are that you're the God of the second chance. How easy it is to dismiss this little book as a flannel graph VBS story. And yet hidden within its chapters are perhaps some of the most significant truths of the entire Bible. A God who is the God of the sea and the God of the land who is providential, providing all that we need, including a Savior. He is a God of compassion. Lord, you're a God of grace, a God of mercy, and you give us repeated illustrations in these four chapters. Lord, we thank you that you use flawed people because that's who we're a part of. 
And I pray, Lord, that we might take to heart what we have learned over these past seven weeks, that indeed you're the God of the second chance. And Lord, for those of us this morning who are discouraged and who have failed miserably and who are embarrassed by our past, who wish we could have a do-over in parenting, who are disappointed in our marriages, who fall flat on our face spiritually, we thank you, Lord, for the sign of Jonah. And we ask, Lord, that you'll help us to embrace the gospel truth that we can glean from its pages. And beloved, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, if you'd like to say, Pastor Joel, you want to know something? This series was for me. This series was for me. And Pastor, I'm going to ask you to pray for me and pray for my family. If that's your heart desire this morning, I'm going to ask you just to slip your hand in the air right now. Right now, just put your hand in the air and say, Pastor, please pray for us. Pray for our family. Pray for my kids, my grandkids, our marriage. Many, many people. Father, you can see these hands, but even beyond that, you can read these hearts. And I pray, Lord, that we might come to know the gospel of grace even more. May the eyes of our heart be enlightened that we might see and grasp and understand how deep and how wide and how high and how broad is the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, give us a sense of hope and confidence. For I ask these things in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen and amen. Amen. I'd like to ask you to stand so that we can conclude by blessing one another. Let me just say as you're standing, if you'd like to come and pray with someone uh, after we're dismissed, I'll be down here. Our head deacon Larry Schumacher will be down here in front. We'd be glad to pray with you. Just come and meet us here. May you receive from God a second chance. May you extend to others a second chance. And may the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit give you peace. Amen. You are loved. Go with grace.